If you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be spending time this morning in Isaiah 61. And I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter in its entirety. And uh, I don't know about you, but um, when somebody reads to me, maybe it's something that was trained into me as a child, but when I'm being read to, I start to get sleepy. (laughs) So, So as I'm reading, if you have to pinch yourself or something, try and stay awake. These are the very words of our God. He says this through his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations." Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion." They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed." I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause, cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we seek to unpack what we have just read just a little bit this morning, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, uh, bring what you have spoken to rest in our hearts in a way where it would flourish and grow and bear fruit. Help us, Lord, in this time. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Uh, What Isaiah 61 is describing is a major theme that runs through the Bible. And that theme can be described, it has been described by theologians as the great reversal. In the end, God is going to turn things upside down, or really, uh, because things are right now are upside down. He's, <laughs> he's going to turn things right side up. 
from the way they are now in the world. And we find this idea in so many places in the Bible. And I believe that God confronts his people with the reality of a coming day when this fallen order of things that we are living in will be overturned because we are so easily tempted to love the current order of things, to invest our hearts in the current order of things, to buy into it, and to live as though that makes sense eternally. However, the Bible tells us that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The Bible says not to wear a crown in this life, but to take up your cross and trust in the day when you'll trade that in for a, cross at the, for a crown at the end of it. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Isaiah 61 is full of descriptions of a coming day when there will be a great reversal. And in truth, we are even now beginning to see the beginnings of that world-changing, upside-down, right-side-up action of the Lord playing out in the church here among us, His people. That far-seeing servant of God, Isaiah, saw the coming reversal not with his natural eyes, but with the supernatural vision of a prophet. He saw good news for the poor, a binding up of the brokenhearted, liberty to captives, prisons thrown open, the Lord's favor falling on those who are his own, who live in righteousness and love righteousness. Vengeance and vindication poured out on a day of wrath and reward. Mourning giving way to comfort and gladness. The faint spirit of the world weary giving way to praise. All the rubble and chaos of the generations that have lived under the curse will be swept away, leveled, and rebuilt along lines that are gospel true. There will be glory in the place of shame, plenty instead of want. There will be justice instead of robbery and righteousness instead of wrong. And brothers and sisters, if you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation, we will be there, in the words of of Isaiah, dressed in garments of salvation in robes of righteousness. This is the phrase that I most want to latch on to and think about this morning. Verse 10 says, For he has clothed me... With the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Just as we have been studying over the past several weeks, clothing as a symbol, uh, not as uh, something that's important for the actions of God, really, but as a symbol of the reality of the fall and God's plan to redeem fallen humanity, clothing holds this kind of surprisingly prominent place in the story of God's plan to redeem fallen humanity. At the first, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed in their garden home. That's the description of Adam and Eve in the garden. They were naked and not ashamed, but then they ate the forbidden fruit, and the very first symptom of the fall, the very first expression in the heart of man of our newfound sinfulness was an awareness that they were naked, and they hid from God. They felt exposed, fearful, and ashamed, all of this born from a horrifying, sudden awareness that they were exposed. So they hid. The first of many inadequate attempts on the part of human beings to provide a covering for their sin 
was a piece of clothing, a crude sort of piece of clothing, sewed together from fig leaves. Born out of panicked expediency, they grabbed the biggest leaves they could find a hand probably and just kind of tried to cover themselves up. The Hebrew word for atonement, which is kafar, means a covering. And I think this idea of clothing as a covering gets closest to the spiritual meaning of it all. Man needs a covering for our sin. We're horrifyingly exposed, and we need to have a covering. And this was first expressed in the, in the attempts of Adam and Eve to cover themselves with these fig leaves, which was deemed by God to be inadequate. So right from the beginning, nakedness represented the shame of our sin, and clothing was representative of a covering for sin. And when Adam and Eve hid from God, please note, it was God who came looking for them. This is the story of, that we're living in. This is the story of our great God, the God of Christianity. He's the hound of heaven who pursues us. <laughs> we don't have the wisdom or the will or the desire to go to him. Adam and Eve were horrified. They were scared. They hid from him. But it was God who came looking for them. And that's the story of how God came to you. God came and pursued you. He found you. He convinced you of his plans for you. It was God who pursued them. And the Bible tells us that God clothed Adam and Eve in animal skins. In other words, he took the life of another creature to provide a covering for their shame. We, co we covered that several weeks ago. And in like manner, God has provided a covering for our sin through the death of another. If you are dressed in robes of righteousness... That robe was taken off of a dead man who was killed in your place. And we're dressed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's a, that, that dressing of Adam and Eve in the garden was a foreshadowing of the work of Christ that has been realized in your own life, where another had to die, blood had to be shed to provide a covering for your sin. That's the law of God. He does not sweep sin under the rug. It must be dealt with. And God did that in a glorious, wonderful way on the cross. It says of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus wore all your sin, and he gave us his robe of righteousness. What an amazing exchange. Because of his love, God has provided a way back to him. All of our human inventions to provide a covering for our sin have failed. But through the sacrifice of Jesus, we've been provided with this covering, fashioned by God. As Isaiah puts it, you've been dressed in garments of salvation, a robe of righteousness. However, here's the question that I want to talk about this morning. What is the difference between a covering and a cover-up? I'm willing to bet that some people hear Christians talk about how God has provided a covering for their sin, robes of righteousness to put over a sin-corrupted heart. And what they visualize most probably in their mind's eye is something like a fresh blanket of snow over a trash-strewn yard. 
or a piece of furniture strategically placed to hide a stain in the carpet, or a wall built along the interstate to hide a homeless encampment. It's all still there. It's just covered up. Is that what the robe of righteousness means? Again, what is the difference between a covering and a cover-up? Let's think about this this morning. First of all, let's state it squarely and honestly that those displays of religiosity and so-called worship that the Bible condemns are tantamount to a cover-up. I'll give you an example. In Luke 20, verses 46 through 47, Jesus is speaking about the religious leaders of his day, he says, Beware of the scribes who who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The act of clothes-wearing should remind us of our desperate need. <laughs> the, very act, the very fact that human beings wear clothes, you get up in the morning, you put on garments, that was born out of an awareness that we were exposed and in need of a covering. But these guys, they wear long flowing robes, not to testify to their neediness before God, but to speak to those around them that they've got it all together. It's a great cover-up. It's a con job. Elsewhere, Jesus describes these same men as whitewashed tombs, sharp-looking on the outside, cleaned up, fresh, but inside full of darkness, stink, corruption, rot. It's a cover-up. He describes them as being like a cup that's washed on the outside but still filthy on the inside. In other words, all their so-called righteousness is a con job. It's an act of deception. It's a fig leaf. Not a covering for their sin, but a cover-up. But again, we come back to that question. (laughs) How is God's covering for our sin different from a cover-up? In his book, The Psychology of Atheism, R.C. Sproul Uh, I love reading R.C. Sproul. If you've never read anything by him, I really recommend it. It, it, It's a stretch. If you're not a book reader, it might might be hard. But, you know, like exercise, you can't get stronger just by sitting around. (laughs) Sometimes you've got to pick up an R.C. Sproul to grow in the faith. And so I encourage you, if you've never read anything by him, uh, find a book and read it. I always find him very challenging but also helpful. In his book, The Psychology of Atheism, R.C. Sproul devotes a chapter to the theme of God and nakedness. He analyzes at length the fear that modern people have of being exposed. First, they're they're afraid of being exposed to other people. But then also, in the background, human beings have this deep fear of being exposed to God. Sproul cites the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the fathers of existentialism, and he defined fear, at least social fear, as being beneath the gaze of someone else. Sartre points out that people don't mind staring at other people 
But the moment we, be, we become aware that another person is staring at us, we get embarrassed and self-conscious, and we change our behavior. Guys, stop looking at me. <laughs> Seriously, it's a little rude. Okay. <laughs> and I know, I, I shouldn't have worn this shirt. But. St- stage fright. Guys, it's so common that I think almost all human beings suffer from it from, to some extent or another. Uh, even professional comedians backstage feel like amped up and nervous before they go out. And they do this stuff for a living. And it's all born out of this fear of coming beneath the gaze of others. Sartre, if you know anything about him, was an atheist. And he argued that this fear of being under the gaze of another was reason for doing away with the idea of God. Uh, we, uh, you might be aware of verses like Hebrews 4.13 where it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the, eye, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jean-Paul Sartre would say, yes, that is the very definition of fear. That human beings have fallen under the gaze of an all-seeing God to whom we must give an account. But he argued that this idea of an all-seeing, all-knowing God made humanity uncomfortable and fearful. He argued that the idea of a God reduces us to objects and destroys our humanity and that therefore, in order to be liberated human beings, we should do away with the notion of God altogether. The idea of God makes you uncomfortable. He just doesn't exist. (laughs) Just say that. Sproul continues in his work by pointing us to an interesting book by Julius Fast called Body Language. Fast traveled the world. He studied all the ways that human beings communicate non-verbally. We manage as human beings to say a lot without ever opening our mouths, our posture, our eyes, the position of our hands. There are loads of gestures and non-verbal cues that people use to communicate with each other. And Fast points out that it is okay among human beings to stare at objects for very long periods of time. You can go to a zoo and stare at animals uninterrupted for hours. But if you stare at a person for too long in any culture on the planet, this is not unique to Western culture, you go anywhere and you just stare at a human being It is universally interpreted as creepy or hostile. And those who are being watched, if you hold your gaze for too long, will feel embarrassed, uncomfortable, or aggressive. The fact that we have doors, window shades, clothes, and shower curtains all speak to that very human desire to escape being beneath the gaze of another. We want to retreat into solitude where we aren't being watched. It's a human being trait, and I believe it's directly tied to the fall. Sproul also spends some time highlighting the ideas of the Christian existential philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. He's a Dane, and I read one of his books, and I could barely understand it. (laughs) Just in case you think I'm trying to appear smart by quoting all these philosophers. I read a Soren Kierkegaard book, and 
Just couldn't hang. I tried. But Soren Kierkegaard, um, he criticized in, in some of his work the human tendency to wear a false mask that allows people to look out onto other people from a place of concealment. Imagine a hunter in a duck blind where they themselves are concealed, but they can watch everyone. And human beings are a lot like this, where from a place of concealment, a hidden place, they've disguised and camouflaged up their hearts, they're watching everybody else and studying them, but they themselves don't want anybody to see them. They don't want the true reality of themselves to fall beneath the gaze of another. And what emerges from exploring all these thoughts that Sproul so helpfully collects for us is the truth that men and women, human beings, long to be known. But on the other hand, they fear being exposed. We're trapped. Guys, we're hopelessly caught. Being known is what we long for, but we recoil in fear at the thought of being known. We all long for the garden. In our heart of hearts, don't you want to be naked and unashamed in the presence of others? Known and truly known, but with no shame attached. We were made for that garden. We were made for that But we've all learned the hard way to dress our hearts in layers, to wear disguises, to be selective, or sometimes even misleading with what we share about others. And sadly, the result is that for many people, they are not truly friends with the people in their lives. They're friends with a version of those people. And they themselves present a heavily curated version to those who call them a friend. Much is held back and hidden from view, and in many of our workplaces and communities, and yes, even our churches, it's all a big masquerade party. It's a big cover-up. However, although we can fool one another some of the time, (laughs) people are pretty intuitive. I think sometimes we think ourselves hidden, and we're actually not. People can see some things. But we can fool one another some of the time. We cannot fool God at all. At all. Here's the thing. Whether your acts of worship are evidence of a cover-up or a covering depends very much on who the intended audience is. The Pharisees of the Bible concern themselves with the good opinion of other men. And with their long flowing robes and the best seat in the synagogue and their long public prayers, they perpetrated a cover-up of epic proportions. They meant through the trappings of their office and their public displays of devotion to disguise their, the sin-corrupted reality of their hearts, and they did it all for the benefit of a human audience who could be fooled. But when the all-seeing eye of God took on flesh and walked among them, he said, you're a whitewashed tomb. This is a cover-up. 
and you have not yet availed yourself of the covering that is available. Sartre would have us stick our head in the sand like an ostrich and deny his existence. But he is as undeniable as gravity. (laughs) You can say there's no such thing as gravity, but you still fall to the ground if you jump. Sartre can say all he wants that it makes me uncomfortable to think of God, so therefore let's just do away with him. (laughs) But that is the very height of foolishness. A covering is different from a cover-up because it is done with the full knowledge of God. In fact, it is done by God. God did not sweep your sins under a rug. He put them on display publicly on a cross. When Jesus became sin in your place, he took your sins and rather than sweeping them on the rug, he put them up on display. And he brought you, and he bought you at such a great cost, knowing precisely, precisely who you were. This is the message of Christianity. You can be known, and you can be covered. And because that's true, you can be genuine. In Christ, our sins are forgiven, our guilt is removed. We experience a glorious freedom and the fear that all us sons and daughters of Adam felt at one time in our nakedness and being exposed to God begins to lose its grip, not because we have hoodwinked God, but because He has covered us with His own righteousness and that with the full knowledge of who we were, who we are, and what He intends to make of us. God knew he was buying a fixer-upper when he purchased you on the cross. Uh, When Sarah and I were moving up here from Florida, we bought our house sight unseen from Florida. We had a near encyclopedic knowledge of Zillow back in those days. Uh, We looked at every house for sale in the county, and we were aware of all that was here, and, and we knew we had a family of a certain size, and for some reason, God just caused our hearts to rest on this house in Washburn where we currently live. But a a group of wonderful brothers and sisters went all through the house. Uh, They nitpicked the whole thing. They gave us a very thorough report on the house, everything that was wrong with it that they could find, (laughs) maybe even to the point of trying to convince us not to buy it. But our hearts were made up. We were going to buy this house, but we bought it knowing it had some significant problems. We bought it knowing it was a fixer-upper and needed attention and maintenance in time, all that. God, when He bought you, He knew you. He's not someday going to say, whoa, 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 you're not who I thought you were. (laughs) You've been perpetrating a cover-up. You see, this is the difference between a covering And a cover-up, it's closely linked to the all-knowing nature of God. That when He provided a covering, nothing was hidden from Him. It couldn't be. He knows you, and you are loved and accepted. This is the message of Christianity, and it is altogether wonderful. In 1 John 4, we read these words, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Let's define fear at least in this moment. Let's give Sartre his due. 
I think he does define it somewhat insightfully by saying fear is being beneath the gaze of another. At least as it relates to God, the fear of the all-seeing eye of God coming to rest on you in all of your imperfections. It says here, perfect love casts out fear. When we get to grasp the heart of grace and compassion and love of the one beneath whose gaze you have fallen, you cease to feel fear in his presence. And then it continues, for fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with unacceptance. Fear has to do with the hammer dropping. And God says perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love, we love because he first loved us. God says that there is no fear in love. Fear has to do with punishment. Fear at the thought of being beneath the gaze of the Almighty is dispelled because he loved us when we were completely unlovely. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, taking our sins onto himself and clothing us, covering us in these robes of righteousness. And I say it is actually a wonderful thing to be known, warts and all, to one who is so perfectly compassionate and so full of love and grace. Because it means that Jesus' love and acceptance of you is not based on the fact that some things are hidden from him. He has no false understanding of you that will one day be shattered when the truth comes out. Jesus, who knew everything about you, who bought you as a fixer-upper, has covered your sins not as an act of deception, but rather as an act of acceptance, love. Your sins have been covered, not covered up. They've been dealt with, not hidden from view. The gospel is not an act of deception. It's the very opposite. By removing the threat of punishment, the gospel allows us to live authentically as a Jesus follower. To be authentic and real, you must be doing what you want. And as long as the threat of punishment was hanging over your head, there was a motivation to do seeming acts of worship for fear that you would be punished if you didn't. But now God has removed the threat of punishment altogether. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what that means is that if you pursue righteousness, if you do what is right, if you worship, it is because you love that thing. Now we can be authentic and real in our pursuit of personal righteousness. Doing so not because we will be punished if we're ever found out, but because we're already known and accepted to God, and now all of our worship is motivated by a love for God, not a fear of discovery and punishment. We walk in the light in sincerity and authenticity, pursuing righteousness without fear of punishment. And we know it's no cover-up because, like it says in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's true. But we also cling to 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, 
for he cannot deny himself. We're clothed in righteousness. There is a great reversal coming. And for all those who put their trust in Jesus and live for him in the midst of these days, there is a hope for a day when we will trade our cross that we've been carrying in for a crown and enter into our reward. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, over the span of these weeks, as we have been looking at your plan to save us, living in these days as we do between the fig leaves of Genesis 3 and the robes of righteousness, Father, we are uh, just so grateful for what you have done for us. God, we believe in a coming day when things are going to be turned right side up. And God, we are living in the days of great moral confusion. Uh, Many in our society today do not rightly understand the difference between right and wrong. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to to represent you well in the midst of those conversations. God, this very world, which may heap scorn on the church at times, is the object of your love. And so, Father, I pray that, uh, when, that, that, when, that when we are faced with the scorn of the world, we would respond with love, that we would represent you well in the midst of conversations that are difficult, God, that you would allow us by the Holy Spirit, uh, give us the capacity to make a radical stand for obedience, even at times when it may be costly, because it will all be worth it in the end. Father, we thank you for not covering up our sins, but for giving us a covering for our sins, that we don't have to walk around feeling like you, if you ever found out the reality of our hearts, you would be disappointed in us, that you would cast us off. Father, we thank you that you bought us knowing who we were, who we are today, but also knowing, uh, God, all that you intend to make of us. And Father, even now, you are conforming us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. Through that process of sanctification, we can see, Lord, your activity in our lives. You're giving us a growing love for righteousness, a greater capacity to obedience, And Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would continue that work in the lives of my brothers and sisters, even unto the day of Christ. Father, we love you, we trust you, and are so grateful for the covering you've provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen.